Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Special Guest Rachel Winter, Senior Investment Manager at Killick. A phrase often cited by investors is that as goes January, so goes the rest of the year, which this year would mean a quiet year for markets. But Kate, you've been looking at this, and it seems that investors shouldn't bank on a quiet time ahead. Why is this? Um, well, I guess for two reasons. So firstly, because this January effect, this idea that um, what happens in January will kind of predict the rest of the year has been kind of disproved um, in the years since 2000. And secondly, because looking at what's happened in January, where markets have been pretty muted, feels um, kind of surprisingly quiet. And it seems that, I don't know, with all the uncertainty facing us, Trump and, and Brexit, it seems quite unlikely that things will stay that kind of calm. But just firstly, this concept that as goes January, goes the rest of the year, that has grown less reliable since 2000. So before January 2000, that was true 81% of the time for the FTSE 100 index. Um, since 2000, it's only been true 53% of the time. So clearly a drop off there. And there is actually a second January principle, which is that markets tend to be generally positive in January. That appears to be less common now too. Um, so before January 2000, again, markets were did tend to be higher probably partly due to those bull markets of the 80s and the 90s. Since January 2000, sadly, less true. And we obviously had last last January was um, a pretty, pretty volatile, bleak one. And I just think when you look ahead to, to what we've got coming up in the year, it, it feels unlikely that we're going to have kind of very calm and quiet markets ahead. OK, Rachel, do you set great store by the so-called January effect? No, I don't at all, actually. I think you just have to look at last year, 2016, to completely disprove this theory. So last January was the worst start to a year that the stock market had ever had. And then it went on to record highs. So I think that really shows that this rule is not true all of the time. Okay. Now, Kate, aside from whether January influences the rest of the year or not, um, how did markets do in January 2017? Um, So everything was quite muted and kind of muted to negative, I'd say. So FTSE 100 was down um, 0.57%. FTSE All Share lost 0.3 Euro stocks down 0.3. The S&P gained 0.05, so not much of a gain there. The one area that did do a little better was emerging markets, which which made a gain of over 3%. So kind of everything quite flat, flat to negative. Okay, and what about in the world of funds? What's been topping the tables there? Well, I guess in just looking at the open-ended, the top five, top ten were really dominated by gold. I guess investors do like gold when there's general nervousness and also with inflation coming back, um, people tend to buy into gold. So that could prove um, or that could explain some of that popularity, I guess. Okay, Um, you mentioned general nervousness. So um, what's preoccupying investors at the moment? I think the US is is obviously preoccupying everyone, investors and um, people alike. Not investors alike, yeah. Um, Yeah, so (laughs) that is kind of on on the front or at the front of people's minds. So particularly in terms of what Donald Trump might do um, policy-wise. So these kind of reflationary infrastructure spending plans will be very important for industrial metals, for infrastructure, sectors like that. And those kind of America first policies would benefit US smaller companies. So it will be interesting to see if that comes through. Um, But valuations are looking so high in the US. And I think there's general nervousness about, you know, can that keep going up? So that's, that's important. 
Also, rate rises in the US are on people's minds. If we get one or two, that will obviously impact bond yields um, and it will have a big impact on the kinds of companies which perform as well. And just generally, what happens in the US will obviously really impact what happens um, for countries all over the world, particularly China, for example, Japan too. We've got Prime Minister Abe meeting meeting Trump today, I believe. And everyone's waiting to see what comes out of these kind of allegations of currency manipulation and, and what, it will, what impact it will have on trade. Okay, so that's what people are worried about. But what do advisors say you should actually be worried about? Well, I guess looking to the UK, um, our, our home market, we have got some similar issues or similar themes in that we've got inflation coming back through, um, which does have an impact on assets and on your portfolios generally. So that's one thing that we might need to start thinking about. Um, and also linked to that the potential for rate rises. So advisors are saying start to have a look at your assets, maybe think about whether um, those returns could be inflation if it does start rising and whether you're diversified enough to, to get the returns that you would need. Okay. And um, what could you invest in to protect yourself against it? Um, well, in terms of assets, uh, generally you want equities over bonds in an in inflationary environment um, because they tend to generate higher returns, um, particularly income generating equities. The, the impact of those compounding dividends really has um, a kind of inflation beating effect. Also, bonds, long dated bonds particularly, just are the most eroded by inflation. So those are the kind of areas where you might want to get out of very long dated bonds not linked to inflation could be hurt. Um, obviously, you can move into index linked or inflation linked corporate bonds and bond funds. Now, potential risk if we don't get inflation to the to the extent that those funds are uh, predicting or those funds are kind of geared up for. So, you know, there are options, but in equities, generally speaking, you want companies or equities which have pricing power, which can pass on the higher prices to their customers rather than taking that on the chin. Okay. Um, now, Rachel, how much of a threat do you think inflation is? And are you suggesting your clients protect themselves against it? I think it's a huge concern at the moment and that's really for two reasons. So I've actually been worried about inflation for a couple of years now and that's really because of quantitative easing and the very loose monetary policy that we've had since the financial crisis. So interest rates have been very low. That's discouraged people from saving and encouraged people to borrow. And I think we have seen the effects of that in the stock market but I wonder if we have yet felt the full effects of that in the real world. And I think over the long term I think that will lead to more and more inflation. And also we've got the fact that sterling has fallen so much since the Brexit referendum. And because the UK is such a big importer, we are going to start have to pay paying a lot more for the goods that we are importing from abroad. And as an example, I talk about the argument that we saw a couple of months ago between Tesco and Unilever. So I believe Unilever mm. tried to hike some of their prices by about 10% because of the fall in sterling. And Tesco really did try and dispute that. So I think we will see a lot more disputes of that nature over the coming months. Okay. Now, what could investors do to protect themselves? What kind of assets and funds might be particularly good for inflation protection? Well, I'd completely agree with Kate. So I think the best place to be if you are worried about inflation is in the stock market. So stock prices do tend to rise over time, as do dividends. You could look at gold as well. Um, gold is often seen as an inflation hedge. It's also seen as a safe haven, but I perhaps wouldn't agree with that so much just because it has been quite volatile over the last four or five years. So yes, I would have some gold in my portfolio because it is a good diversifier, but I wouldn't go overboard and be piling all of my money into gold. 
I think the real issue with inflation is what to do if you're a cautious investor. Because at the moment, well, if I look back to December, UK inflation was 1.6%. If you're a cautious investor, you might want to be in cash. But at the moment, there aren't any bank accounts paying an interest rate of 1.6%. So if you're cautious and you're staying in cash, you're going to be losing money in real terms. So you've got the choice between that or moving into another type of asset that's going to pay you more, but it will mean taking more risk. Okay, thank you, Kate and Rachel, some useful suggestions. And um, on the subject of cash, we'll uh, be talking about that in a little while. Now, we were talking about persistently low interest rates, um, and these have meant, among other things, strong investor appetite for companies with dependable earnings, so-called expensive defensives. But more recently, investors have been shifting towards growth-orientated companies. Emma, you've been looking at this. Why are investors interested in growth again? The main reason is the impact of President Trump's unexpected win and the fact that he's promised to enact infrastructure spending and huge tax cuts. And all of that is expected to increase inflation. And so the market's expecting an increase in inflation and further interest rate rises. And so because of that, people were wanting to move out of lower yielding um, dependable defensive companies and into companies that have the potential to create strong growth in this new environment. Okay, and what might be a good way for investors to tap into this rotation? Um, well, one fund that we were looking at this week is M&G Recovery. And this is an interesting fund because it invests in companies that are out of favour with the market. So for the last few years, that has the unloved stocks have been in financials, oil and gas and more economically sensitive companies. And um, as we mentioned, the, the in-fashion companies have been those so-called expensive defensive. But now that the market is starting to rotate towards a different um, uh, narrative, those stocks that have, have the potential to grow well could start to outperform. So this fund could benefit from that. OK. Um, are there any other reasons why M&G Recovery might do well? Um, well, there's also the possibility of increased merger and acquisition activity. And in particular, this is something that seems to be increasing. So, for example, one of this fund's holdings, Lavenden, has recently been the subject of a bidding war by two overseas buyers. Um, and that's something that has pushed up its stock price and could lead to further opportunities um, if other stocks in its portfolio um have the similar situation happen to them. Okay. Um, and how has um, M&G Recovery performed over the last few years? Well, the fund has not done well. And, you know, this could be to do with the fact that um, it's it's has this position, a contrarian position. So over the last three and five years, it's underperformed both its index and its sector. But in the last year, its performance has really picked up and it's currently fifth out of 263 funds in the Investment Association's UK all companies sector. So it could be the fact that this market rotation we've been speaking about um, means that this fund could be set to continue to do well. Okay, so a bad period, but looks like it's turning. Um, Rachel, do you think the investor shift towards more growth-oriented companies can continue? 
I think it can, yeah. So the, the sectors that have done badly recently, so you talked about these expensive defensives, I would, I'd refer to those as so-called bond proxies. So there are certain companies such as utility companies. And these are companies that produce products or services that you wouldn't necessarily buy any more of if your income were to rise, but you wouldn't buy less of if your income were to fall. So the earnings of these companies is very stable and they tend to trade almost like bonds. And because we've seen quite a fall in the bond market over the last couple of months, because we think that Trump's policies will cause rates to rise, we've also seen a fall in the prices of these so-called bond proxy stocks. And that's because investors are moving out of those and into more growth-orientated businesses. So as long as we do start to see some economic growth, yes, I do think that we could continue to see an outperformance in these growth companies. Okay, and um, how should investors who believe this rotation will continue position themselves? You've got to think about where the growth is going to be. And I would keep a very close eye on what Trump is up to because his policies could really move certain areas of the market. So at the moment, he's looking at lowering financial regulation. That could be very good for the banking sector. We've already seen a rise in banking stocks, but we've got to make sure that he actually follows through with these policies. If he does, I think we could see a further rise in these banking stocks. But if not, then they could come back to where they were before. So I think you've got to keep a very close eye on what he's doing. Okay, and are there any funds that you'd suggest that um, would be particularly good for capturing um, these themes? I think I'd probably look at something called the Fidelity Global Dividend Fund. So that does focus on large blue blue chip companies across the whole world. It's got very good exposure to the US. It does focus on large companies that have very stable dividends. And it does have a fairly good amount of money in the financial sector, which does tend to be quite good for yield. So that's one that I'd look at. And a completely different type of fund, actually. Um, So when I'm looking for growth, I tend to look towards the technology sector, because that's where a lot of the, the major growth has come from over the last couple of years. So I would look at the Polar Capital Technology Trust, and that really focuses on the main large technology stocks in the US. So companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, those are all in this trust, and I think those will continue to outperform. Okay. Now, um, those both sound good, but are there any risks or downsides to these uh, funds or generally taking on these, these positions that we've been talking about? Definitely. So you've always got market risk. So if you are in the stock market, you've always got the risk that the whole market will fall. And you've also got sector risk as well. So as we mentioned earlier, Trump is changing a lot of policies at the moment, and that could benefit some sectors and negatively impact others. So you've got to keep a very close eye on what he's doing. And I think you've just got to make sure you don't put all your eggs in one basket. So you can't think, I think financial is going to do well, I'm going to put all my money into that. I think that would be a mistake. I think you've got to make sure you maintain a very diversified portfolio. Okay, thank you, Rachel. That is really helpful. Now, as we mentioned before, an asset that doesn't seem the least bit attractive because of low interest rates is cash. And this is even more the case with predictions of an increase in inflation. But we all need to have, at the very least, a small allocation to cash. For example, for emergencies, short-term needs, or the, the need to ride out market volatility. Kate, with this in mind, how much cash should investors hold? Uh, the general rule of thumb seems to be to hold cash uh, worth between three and six months expenditure, say the people I've spoken to. And um, specifically for investors with an allocation to risk assets such as equities, what level of cash should they hold? Um, so, yeah, if you're holding cash in the investment portfolio, um, it seems to be worth holding about between three and five years worth of income withdrawals from your portfolio just to avoid you having to sell funds at bad times. Okay. Um, Rachel, um, what level of cash do you suggest your clients have? 
It really is such a difficult one and it really does depend on the risk appetite of the individual client. But I would agree with six months worth of expenditure as a starting point. And then if you are perhaps a more cautious investor, you might hold a bit more. If you have got a big purchase coming up in the next few months or even the next couple of years, I would probably want to hold that amount of money in cash as well. So, for example, if you're about to buy a house, if you've got your deposit all saved up and you think you might buy that house within the next two years, I probably would hold that money in cash as well. Because it would be so awful if you put that money into the stock market and the stock market fell 50% and then you couldn't buy your house. So it really depends on your own personal circumstances. Okay. Now, rates are bad. But Kate, you've been investigating this area. So um, where can investors maybe get a better rate of cash despite low interest rates? Um, well, we, we've had the introduction of a lot of challenge banks onto the high street, which has resulted in really ramping up rates um, on cash savings. So in the kind of top buy lists, you, you rarely see the high street banks now or the building societies. But we do have quite a lot of these new names like Atom Bank, um, BLME, Charter Savings Bank, Icano from the same people that bring you IKEA. Um, so and they have rates of between kind of 1.1 the lowest um, or the lowest in the table we've looked at to kind of 1.5% and that's on one year fixed savers. Obviously, the longer you tie your money up for um, the higher the rate. Okay, and how are these um, different to traditional banks? Well, mainly these are digital, uh, or there's a big focus on digital here. So a lot of them are online only. Atom Bank is actually only an app, so there are no branches. Um, You can't even go on the website. So they're very much capital light. There are no kind of branch costs associated, which is obviously why they're able to offer higher rates. Um, But in the most part, you can only open these accounts online. Um, Some may have branches. But there's a big push for you doing this, you know, via your phone or your computer. Okay. Now, um, these are you, um, for some investors, maybe perhaps a bit unusual. Is your cash as safe with these banks as with the high street stalwarts? Yeah, well, your cash is generally protected by the financial services compensation scheme. Um, So just like any other bank that adheres to the same scheme, guarantees deposits of up to 85,000 per person and then um, short term high balances too. So some are not covered by that scheme, but they are covered by similar schemes. So European-wide deposit schemes. Um, for example, Icano um, is covered by a Swedish scheme, but again, 85,000 um, per person is protected. RCI Bank, that's French. Um, so you get 100,000 euros equivalent protected. So you just need to check um, which compensation scheme these adhere to. But generally speaking, your money is protected in a very similar way or the same way to a UK bank. Rachel, what do you think of the challenger banks? Are they a good place to save your cash? I think they're definitely worth looking at. So as long as they are part of the financial services compensation scheme, then I would happily put my money with one. And I think Kate's absolutely right in saying the reason they can offer better rates is because they do have a much lower cost base. So with the, with the traditional banks, they've all got many, many branches. But over the last few years, we have seen them closing down branches at a very, very fast rate indeed. And that's because these branches are so expensive and they are being used less and less because we are all, mo- all moving online. So these challenger banks, they are online only. And that does mean they can save money that way and then pass on their savings to their customers via higher rates. Okay, now you emphasised FSES protection. So would you advise investing in an institution that's maybe not covered by the FSES, but does have the benefit of a similar scheme from 
a developed, well-regulated country such as France or Sweden? If it's a developed country, I imagine it would be fine. But I will be honest and say it's not my area of expertise. And with Brexit happening, I probably would want to keep a very close eye on the regulation to see if that changes as we move out of the EU. Okay. Now, VFSCS and similar schemes only cover cash up to a certain level. Um, as Kate mentioned, in the case of VFSCS, this is 85000 per person per institution. So what can people have more cash than that do to safeguard it? Well, the most obvious option is to have more than one bank account. So if you have, say, half a million pounds, maybe open up six different bank accounts. But if you have a lot more than that, then it could become quite admin heavy. You don't want to be operating 20 or 30 different bank accounts. So if you do have a large amount of cash, I think you would have to consider perhaps investing it or buying some sort of real asset in order to preserve that value. So cash is the easiest thing. But then perhaps above that, something else that is also fairly low risk, I would say, would be government bonds. So you could look at those, but that would involve a little less liquidity than you would have with cash. So again, this decision would depend on your personal circumstances. Okay. Now, Kate, other than looking beyond traditional high street banks, are there any other ways to boost the rates you can get on your cash? Um, I guess that the main way to boost boost the rate is to just by locking it away for longer. So um, a fixed rate bond, say, five years. Um, and there, in fact, the rates have been increasing, particularly um, with some of these challenger banks. So you might get a rate of something like uh, 2.10%. Um, obviously, you need to think about whether that is something you want to do. What are the downsides to fixing and um, how sh- long should you do it for? Uh, well, the downside to fixing and particularly prescient now, I guess, with um, inflation on the rise and potential interest rate rises happening certainly within the next five years, you could see. So if you think about that happening, if you've locked up your money, that rate that you're getting suddenly won't look as appealing if interest rates have come up by quite a bit. Um, so I would suggest, or certainly the advisors we've spoken to, would suggest certainly not fixing for more than two years, maybe even only one year, just because the outlook is, is a bit uncertain for, for rate rises and for inflation. Rachel, do you think people should lock their money up to get a better interest rate? I'd also be quite reluctant to do it for quite a long time because we've already seen rates start to rise in the US and I think it will start to happen at some point in the not so distant future in the UK. So if you're in the UK, let's say you lock your money away for 10 years at a rate of 2%. In five years time, you might be able to get a rate of 5% elsewhere, but you wouldn't be able to move into that because you've locked yourself into this low rate at 10 years. So I think you have to be very careful with these long, long dated accounts. What's the longest you'd uh, lock money up for? Again, it depends on personal circumstances, but I would be reluctant to do it for more than one or two years. Okay, thank you, Rachel. And you can see the types of rates some of the other challenger banks are offering in Kate's article in this week's magazine and on the website. That brings us to the end of today's podcast, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Rachel Winter, Senior Investment Manager at Killick. You can read more on the January effect, rotating into growth and the best ways to save your cash in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. 
Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.